once you put that on, they, they don't breathe. So you, it doesn't matter how cold it is outside or, or how hot, as soon as you put that on, you're going to start sweating. And if you are claustrophobic, we can tell that pretty quickly. As soon as we, we put the suit on someone and put that visor down, uh, if, you, if they're going to have a bad reaction or, or have an issue with tight spaces, then that, that usually shows itself pretty quickly. That would be me. I'd be like, I'm done. Oh. <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> Welcome to Crime News Insider. This is Jorge Delportillo. And with me, as always, is the incomparable Lori Hoff. How are you, Lori? I'm great. How are you, Jorge? Good. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. So uh, in this episode, we're going to be talking about the bomb arson team with the San Diego Sheriff's Department. And, you know, arson has been in the news lately from wildfires to buildings being set on fire during the protests and attempted arsons at the home of political figures Earlier this year in San Diego, a suspected arson was started at the home of County Supervisor Nathan Fletcher. And just this week, I saw on Monday, authorities are investigating an arson case at the home of the mayor of Vancouver, Washington. And just in another case in Washington, the bomb squad is looking for a suspect who placed a bomb in a car of a funeral attendee and caused it to explode. Uh, There's just been a lot of wildfires started too from arson. So I was thinking, you know, wildfire season is coming up in California here and a lot of them are started by arsons. Lori, have you ever had an arson case? You know, I've had a few along the way and, uh, you know, it struck me that it's such a difficult subject for, you know, our police officers and our, you know, first responders who have to put themselves in grave danger to have to either investigate these cases, uh, you know, to, to see if they need to, um, take care of a bomb or go out there and and deal with our wildfires. It's really to their credit and and putting themselves on the line for for these types of cases can be really, really dangerous. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And uh, there's no better guest to have than someone from the bomb arson unit of the San Diego County Sheriff's Department. So without further ado, I'm going to bring on uh, Anthony Tripoli. Anthony Tripoli has been a San Diego County Deputy Sheriff for 17 years and a detective with the Sheriff's Bomb Arson Unit since 2015. He's a member of the California Conference of Arson Investigators. International Association of Bomb Technicians and Investigators, and the International Association of Arson Investigators. Anthony Tripoli, thank you for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. So I want to ask you, you're on the, the Bomb Arson Unit. Can you tell us about your unit, what it is, and the mission of the unit? Absolutely. So our, our unit is made up of seven detectives that are all deputy sheriffs. At one time or another, we were patrol and, and had other assignments. And we worked uh, up to a point where uh, when an opening came available, we applied. There is a, a physical uh, test that we go through with some obstacles and basic evaluation as to how you are able to operate inside of a bomb suit. And there is a, a typical uh, like interview panel, basically make a list off of uh, your performance in those areas. And then if you're selected, you get to fill one of those spots. Like I said, when they come available, currently there's seven with uh, one sergeant. So a team of total of eight. Okay. What's the type of training that you have to go through to, to be ready enough to go out and, and respond to these types of calls? So our, our unit bomb and arson, we have two very very detailed and specific portions of our job. We'll kind of look at it as two different sides of the house. 
the the bomb side, it takes years to really be proficient and to be trained to a level where you are comfortable working with almost any part of that job. And it kind of uh, comes to a head or or uh, you get certified by the FBI. So every public safety bomb technician in the country has gone through the same school. They're all certified by the FBI. And that school is held at the Redstone Arsenal. It's an army base in Huntsville, Alabama. And that's basic school. There are several follow-on schools that every tech you know, has the ability to go through and does. And then once your foot is in the door and you're a bomb technician certified, not only the FBI has classes, but the ATF as well. The FBI and what was called NABSCAB, the National Bomb Squad Commanders Advisory Board, which is made up of bomb squad commanders from different squads across the country, kind of set guidelines and, and offer recommendations for like required training hours or classes. And uh, part of that is it was just been changed from a 16 hours a month recommended uh, to 24 hours a month. So here locally, we, we do a minimum of 24 hours a month of bomb specific training. That, so that's just on the bomb side. That's just exactly just the bomb side. So the fire side, uh, we go through uh, several fire classes to become or well, to become fire investigators for the department. Uh, we work with a lot of uh, CAL FIRE and uh, going through their schools. Uh, those schools can take us uh, several different places. They're not held in one specific location like, uh, like I said, HDS or Hazardous Devices School is. Uh, but we do go through that training uh, to understand fire dynamics and, and fire, looking for fire patterns and uh, to get proficient with kind of how to handle a fire investigation. So can you quickly tell us about, you know, you respond to a fire, you're investigating it for arson. How do you go about investigating an arson? And can you tell our listeners what is an arson? Arson is the the willful or or malicious uh, setting of a fire. Okay. At at the very basic explanation of it, that's what it is. So you don't have to use like gasoline or anything, as long as you're just willfully and maliciously setting a fire, that's it. Um, and yep, burning that, something. Arson. Okay. There's subsections for like charging, whether or not it's an inhabited structure, whether or not it's a wildland or, or like a grassland fire, whether or not it's a vehicle or a, a, like an uninhabited structure. So there are the subsections of it, but arson, just baseline arson is a willful maliciously setting a fire or causing a fire. And then how do you go about investigating like, oh, no, this was accidental versus uh, this is probably suspicious or uh, deliberate. So we're mission based. Our, our unit is we're not proactive. We, we, we're not on a patrol uh, capacity. So we get our calls when usually a patrol unit or a fire department calls and requests us for assistance in determining how a fire occurred. Whether or not it's suspicious or not, we, we don't try to have any type of uh, presumption about a fire. So we go there with just, hey, how did this fire occur? And uh, we step into that with uh, what would be the scientific method. Seven-part process. We're going to look and, and determine, okay, the recognize the need. So a fire has occurred, and we're going to look for the origin and cause of that fire. 
to ensure that uh, or try to prevent uh, another fire from occurring there or uh, determine how it happened. The second part would be to define the problem. So we have a fire. Well, what resources are we going to need? What hazards are there? And to determine that origin and cause. And we move on to collecting the data. And that could be uh, observations that we see when we look at the fire patterns. Uh, it could be collecting witness or video information that uh, could aid us in seeing how the fire looks like it started over here. That's a lot of times one of our, our best uh, resources when it comes to fire because fire is destructive in nature and, and tends to burn, you know, burns the evidence, the evidence and, and yeah. everything uh, that we're having to look for. What, uh, what if someone's, someone's house, they're just playing the Billy Joel song. We didn't start the fire. Is that an, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm going to yeah. cut that out. <laughs> cut that out. No, leave it. <laughs> uh, after that, we've collected the data. We, we move on to analyzing it. So, uh, the investigators get together and we start to process that and piece it all together. Uh, Cause a lot of times it takes an investigative team to go to these fire scenes, especially a large fire or a house um, say, so there's going to be detectives that are going to be interviewing the fire department that first came on scene. They're going to be uh, canvassing the neighborhood, looking for any kind of surveillance video or other witnesses that may or may not have seen something. Uh, we're going to have a, a team of detectives that are going to enter the house and they're going to de-layer and, and dig, dig out with shovels and picks and whatever tools we need and, and look for that origin and cause. So that general area of origin, if we can narrow it down to a specific point of origin, and uh, our goal when we're doing that is to, to basically look for a competent ignition source. And we're going to look for a fuel that was first ignited and then try to piece together what event brought those things together. Mm. And once we've done that, then we're going to start to develop a, a hypothesis and then through an inductive reasoning, putting that data together, come up with, okay, well, uh, now we, we, we believe that this is how it happened. And then we move on to testing that hypothesis through deductive reasoning, comparing uh, other ideas or things that could have occurred to our, our believed hypothesis. And then finally selecting uh, what seems consistent with all the data and determining, hopefully in the end, a point of origin and a specific cause. And those causes can be classified further into ex generally accidental, natural, incendiary, or undetermined. And sometimes, you, like you said, it burns evidence or you can't even determine it. So you would just list it as undetermined. If we cannot determine, like I said, those things that that competent ignition source and a material first ignited and what have brought them together, then yes, we will classify it as undetermined. We go to fires and not every fire is a crime. And, and like I said, we, we don't go there with a presumption of uh, we're investigating a crime every time. It's, hey, what do we have? And sometimes it ends up a crime and sometimes it's not. Are there some cases, Anthony, that that stick out in your mind for for arson purposes, because in my mind, we, I know I can think of minor cases where, you know, just the side of a building gets, you know, charred. And I can think of major cases where, you know, you've had animals in the house die. You've had, you know, family members get severely injured. Um, are there any, is there anything that sticks out for you in your career? I've had pretty much all 
all ends of the spectrum when it comes to arson and, and fire investigations. I've, I've had all the way up through a, a multiple homicide case that I've worked with, uh, Escondido, where a body was taken from one location in the back of a vehicle and then set fire to uh, in, one, in another area in a different city. And I've had up to even last night, I, I worked a, uh, or a couple nights ago, worked a fire or a series of fires that were uh, waddling. You know, someone was walking around and, and just setting fires on the side of the road. Yeah, they can, I mean, they can span. There's so, so many different types. And I, I, that, I guess that's why you have to be versatile and keep an open mind when you're doing your investigations. Yes. Yeah. And then we have a lot of fires that are non-criminal, that just electrical. You know, sometimes it's, it's as simple as, hey, I, I had a rodent problem. I, I've had that for a couple of years. Rats chewing in wires. Or, or I've had, yeah, my breaker, you know, I, it trips all the time. I, I don't know what the problem was. And and then, uh, yeah, I've been having electrical problems for, for a while now. Hmm. It's, it's pretty routine for, for electrical to be the most likely reason for a fire. Let's jump to the other half of your, uh, your unit's duties. Your duties is to investigate callouts for bombs. And you talked a little bit about your training and, and what you have to go through. But you literally are called out to investigate not just bomb threats, but actually deal with the the actual bomb. Like if you someone finds a bomb and it's a real bomb, are you the ones, you know, like we see in the movies that are there, like cutting the wires and disabling the bomb? Yes. Yes. So each of the detectives were issued and assigned a bomb suit. So like you would see in the movie, uh, the, well, the movie that usually that people know and, and think about is Hurt Locker, yeah. you know, the, the military overseas and, and wearing that big, heavy suit. And yes, we all we all wear that suit and we train in it. We we operate in it, you know, out on calls. What's that suit made uh, out of? Uh, it's layers of Kevlar and, and steel plate and uh, I mean, very heavy ballistic uh, glass for the visor. Uh, it has. Well, there's different generations of the suit. It's it's evolved a little bit over time in some materials and, and kind of uh, features, but it has uh, radio that can be integrated into it, a speaker so we can communicate easily uh, in and out of it. It has lights. Certain variants variants of the the suit have fans in them to help kind of just circulate. They don't really cool you down, but they circulate air so you, you don't fog up in the visor, uh, and you can actually see what you're doing. That was one of the things that you said earlier was part of the the training or um, selection is seeing how people operate in a bomb suit. Um, is it hard? Is it hard to do that? Yeah, the suits uh, can weigh as much as 100 pounds. And so once you put that on, they, they don't breathe. So you, it doesn't matter how cold it is outside or or how hot. As soon as you put that on, you're going to start sweating. And if you are claustrophobic, we can tell that pretty quickly as soon as we we put the suit on someone and put that visor down. Uh, if you, if they're going to have a bad reaction or, or have an issue with tight spaces, then that that usually shows itself pretty quickly. That would be me. I'd be like, I'm done. Uh, <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> Sometimes we call it the the dome of ignorance because once you start putting that visor down and, and start having to uh, perform tasks, you can you know get that tunnel vision and kind of start to forget other things that are going on. And, and so you really have to, to have a, a good head on your shoulders and be able to that, that take that multitasking and, and really 
understand your surroundings and, and the mission and, and the things that need to be done and the order that they need to be done. Because it's a lot of managing equipment, managing time, understanding the threat, understanding explosives and the hazards with explosives to be able to, to do that mission, not only safely, but effectively. Have you had to respond to a bomb call out and wear that suit and like deal with a, a real bomb? Yes. Mm-hmm. Wow. Can, can you tell us about uh, an incident? Uh, yeah, I've worn that a few times. I think most recently uh, with pipe bombs, but all the way down through uh, just containers of unknown powders. Mm. And uh, if you just have enough powder, regardless of whether you see it in a uh, confined in a pipe, I mean, they, they, that can be dangerous enough uh Cause, cause for enough concern to, to go ahead and, and get that extra protection that that big bomb suit provides. So these, these suits, they can protect you from a blast? Or is there, I mean, I'm assuming there's some sort of threshold. Yes. So the suits, they, they do a really good job, but it, it, it all, it comes back to the proverbial, like, it all depends, right? Right. How, how much explosives? How close are you? What's the environment? Are, are, if I'm going to work on a pipe bomb in the middle of a street, that is a, let's just call it a, a one inch diameter pipe bomb, six inches long, then I can work on that. And, and I feel confident that if it were to go off, that I wouldn't die. Like I might lose my hands because wow. they're not protected, but my, my organ, you know, my vital organs and, and my head, which is behind all that protection. Yes. I, I, I feel like that suit would have no problem absorbing that. But if you change that to it's a six inch diameter pipe up against the side of a building, a concrete building. And so now we start looking at the the differences in explosives and uh, blast wave overpressures and effects. So that's where things start to change. And so the suit is great. I'm glad we have it. And like I said, I've used it. Uh, but there's a lot of factors on on whether or not you are going to survive a blast or not. And so when, when people ask and we we talk about like going back to the movie, The Hurt Locker, if you can remember the scene where he's working on a, a vehicle bomb and there's a, a bunch of explosives inside the back of it and he just takes the suit off and just, uh, don't need that. And <laughs> that's simply because. If, if it were to go off, that suit's not going to save him. He, he's going to die either way. And so that, that was a, just, I guess, a, a, a Hollywood example of where you can see something that, yeah, there's some truth in that where don't even bother. It seems like that there, there has to be a lot of consistent training on your part, even if you're not you know, disassembling a bomb on a daily basis, you have to be ready to do it. Absolutely. That, that's partly why the NABSCAB group had increased our kind of recommended training hours per month. But all, all this to be said, our number one goal is preservation of life. And so if yeah. we've removed and evacuated an area and there's no threat to someone in particular, then we have just a property crime or, or you know risk to property. If it's not critical infrastructure or, or, or the area can withstand a detonation, then uh, I'm not going to go down there uh, w- wearing a suit or not. We're going to use robots. And uh, our unit, we have several different types of robots. They have different capabilities and, and design functions that uh, we're going to go ahead and use a robot first. 
Hmm. That makes sense. Um, do you, uh, do you notice maybe uh, since you've been on this team that your team has a specific backgrounds that they come with? Like, do you come, do a lot of people come with some sort of a science background or, um, do some people just fall into it just by happenstance? Watching the hurt locker and then wanting to join it. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a, it's a pretty good mix. So uh, currently we've, we've got guys on the unit that were in the military as bomb techs. And one that he joined the sheriff's department knowing that we have a bomb squad. And that was his goal was to come here in, in this unit. Personally, like when I joined the sheriff's department, it wasn't to become a bomb tech or to, to come to this unit specifically. But as a young patrol guy working and calling this unit out to different scenes that I had, I, I started to understand, you know, see them and, and talk to the, the bomb techs at the time. And I'm like, hey, that's interesting that, you know, I can see myself. I, I want to go work there and do that job. Uh, so that personally was how I got involved or inspired to, to work towards and join the unit. Uh, but we have guys that have very strong computer backgrounds. But certainly, uh, like you're saying, Laurie, it's, it's, it's important to have quite a cross section of guys that are mechanically inclined, that are, that are uh, good working with electronics or chemistry. We do a lot of those types of things uh, with what we do, being able to build devices and, and be able to kind of put your mind in, in that space to, to think about how things work uh, is super important. But being good detectives is really a major factor too. So guy, you know, being able to interview well and, and uh, build rapport and, and be able to do the detective side of the house is very, very important. That makes sense. We were, we were going back to the, to the wildfires, which we probably experience in San Diego more than most communities. Mm -hmm. What, what types of things should people watch out for? When should they report? When should we be concerned as citizens that it's, that it might be an arson as opposed to some other type of wildfire that, you know, sometimes we can see? Well, I think, I mean, anytime someone is aware of a fire, I mean, they should be getting the fire department to take a look, even if they've self-extinguished it themselves. Okay. Because the fire department, you know, that's their job. They come out and they, you know, they can look for hot spots with, you know, FLIR imaging they can uh, kind of be that, that first level of triage to see and, and kind of screen things. And if it catches their eye or, or something that rises to the level of, oh, I need an investigator to come out and tell me how it started because I don't know or, or something could seem weird here, then uh, that's kind of what I would recommend is, is just always calling on a fire, at least at that, at that level to get the fire department to see. And then FLIR is just the forward-looking infrared. Oh yeah, I, I know the acronym there. Right? I know all the acronyms. <laughs> but We've had well. some arson cases. Yeah, you know, it's, yes. yeah, it's that nighttime so, vision stuff, right? From like a, a helicopter infrared. So yeah, forward yes, looking infrared. Have, uh, the image looks the same, you know, day or night. It's like a black and white image, and you can switch it whether it's or black hot or white hot. So you see just the the temperature contrasts in the image. And uh, they can see, oh, is, it, is this really, really an area that everything's cooled down now? Or do we have a hot spot or something that could rekindle and reignite this fire? So even, like I say, when, when you self-extinguish something, uh, it, it's good to, to have them take a look. You know, being a cop, it's, it's always a dangerous job. But I mean, your job specifically dealing with bombs and fires, I guess, um, but especially bombs. 
is all the more salient of that danger. What's the scariest moment you've ever been in while in this unit? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I, I think maybe some of the scariest has been working with a pyrotechnics. Mm. More bomb technicians are, are injured and, and killed each year uh, just working with pyrotechnic mixtures or fireworks than they are working on bombs like the IEDs, the, the pipe bombs or, or ordnance. Uh, it's those pyrotechnic mixtures, the flash powders, the black powder, smokeless powders. Working with those can be unpredictable, and it's uh, one spark here or or, uh, or there, and, and a lot of bad things can happen. The injuries happen every year, and 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 worse. What's the message with that? Is it because it's so combustible, or or unpredictable? You said unpredictable. Is it is it that these substances are not contained? Well, it has to do with the the sensitivities of them, especially with like a flash powder. So a, a chlorate and a metal, typically like a potassium chlorate and an aluminum powder is, is your is your typical flash powder. And they have low ignition temperatures and they're easy to ignite and, and just very sensitive. And it doesn't take much in handling for that to happen. We... We train with and, and have had had real calls with homemade explosives. So like the, the TATP and HMTD, the, the things that you have seen in the news and heard about, you know, the terrorists make overseas and, and, and that I've had here domestically. And if, if, if listeners can remember here uh, locally, back in 2010, we had the Escondido bomb house. Uh, that was uh, a case that our unit handled. It was before I joined the, the team, but uh, I was on the department, just not on this unit. But at the time, that was the largest domestic cache of homemade explosives ever discovered. Mm. And it resulted in uh, them getting an order signed by Governor Schwarzenegger at the time and, and approval to just burn the house down because the homemade explosives powders that were uh, residue all throughout the house and in dispersed in different parts of the yard were, were so dangerous to continue to operate. That was really the safest you know, option in the end. So I say fireworks and pyrotechnics are, are probably one of the more scarier things that I routinely deal with, but working with a homemade explosive on a call is, is probably outside of uh, that. The, the most thing that I've kind of said, oh, this is, this is something that could bite me here. This is dangerous. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for all the work that you do and putting yourself and your team on the line every day oh. for, for um, our community. It's really amazing. And it's cool to see that, you know, we have those specialized services here in our hometown. Yeah, you're welcome. I, I enjoy, I love what I do. I, and I, I think this is the best job on the department. And I've stayed here as, as long as I have because I, I truly enjoy and, and love what I do. And it's taken a long, long time to, to master as, as much as I can and to do what we do. It, it just takes a lot of time. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it sounds like it. Yeah. Well, th thank you so much again for you, for everything that you do. Anthony Tripoli on the bomb arson unit. But we are not done yet. We're going to play some crime or fiction. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so each episode, we look at the laws on the books where I come up with three crimes. Two are real. One is fake. And I quiz you uh, to see if you could guess which one is the fake. And at home, you could play along, of course. The theme is fire laws throughout the United States. 
Are you ready? Yes. No. Oh, no. yes. <laughs> Here we go. A, in Florida, it's illegal to fail to notify your neighbor of a dangerous fire that you started on your property. B, in Illinois, it's illegal to eat in a restaurant that is on fire. And C, in Racine, Wisconsin, it's illegal to refuse to aid a firefighter. Lori, uh, I usually have our guests go oh, first. Come but on. Lori, I'm going to have <laughs> you go first this time. Yes. Switch it up. You're going to make me pay. Um, what have I done to you, Jorge, lately? Honestly, <laughs> You've gotten a lot of them right, so I'm trying to throw you off. Um, B seems crazy. Why Why would you want to eat in a restaurant that's on fire? I, I don't know. Um, so I'm just going to have to go with B, that, that it seems like a crazy law that that would be illegal because it's so obvious. So I'm, I'm just going to go B. Okay, B. That's the fake. B is the fake, the Illinois one eating in a restaurant. Uh, I don't know why that would be legal, but okay. So Anthony, (laughs) up to you. (laughs) See, I was thinking that one seems so obscure that it's gotta be real. (laughs) In Illinois, they have a lot of people that are willing to take some risks for food. (laughs) Yeah. That one seems like it's one of those, it would be easier to, uh, to establish that that that's been met. So I was going to say that that one was real. Um, I think that the Florida one, having to tell your neighbor anything is probably fake. (laughs) (laughs) Why would they have that law in Florida, honestly? Okay, so A, Florida, it's illegal to fail to notify your neighbor of a dangerous fire you started on your property. You think that's the fake? I think that's a fake. Okay, so let's go to C, since you both agree. In Racine, Wisconsin, it's illegal to refuse to aid a firefighter. You both think this is a law, this is a crime. And this is a crime. It's section 66-163. It's called failure to aid firefighting officer. No person shall, without reasonable excuse, refuse or fail upon command to aid any person known to him to be a firefighting officer. Makes sense. Yeah. So they could recruit uh, people to firefighter. Yeah. Here. Um, like I've been comatatus there, huh? Yeah, it's like a posse comatatus. A lot of people don't know that. Yeah. So um that is a law on the books. Let's go to let's go to A in Florida. It's illegal to fail to notify your neighbor of a dangerous fire you started on your property. Lori thinks this is real, and Anthony thinks this is fake, and this one is real. It's actually oh. 877. Point one five. It's called failure to control or report a dangerous fire. And it's and so I kind of phrased it differently, but it basically says any person who knows that a fire is endangering life or property of another and fails to take reasonable measures or notify um, the person is guilty of a misdemeanor uh, or who fails to give prompt fire alarm. And it says you only have that duty when you start the fire on your property. <laughs> Someone someone in Florida, this is really targeting that that person. Yeah. Yeah. Something specific happened there. Yeah. (laughs) They're like, we we need to put a law on the books for this. Right. Uh, That all means B in Illinois, it's illegal to eat in a restaurant that is on fire. That is not a law on the books. But, you know, I was Googling for weird fire laws and this one kept coming up. It's like, did you know it's illegal to eat in a restaurant that's on fire or that's burning in Illinois? And I'm searching Illinois law. No, it's not all the law in the books. So <laughs> don't believe the internet is what right. Abraham Lincoln once said. Believe Jorge Del Portillo. <laughs> yes. Lori, you won. Congratulations. No, 
It was just, it was just a lucky day. That's all I can say. (laughs) Good job. Thank you. Well, uh, Anthony Tripoli, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thank you for your service uh, to the community. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. All right. And Lori, thank you as always. Thank you. And thank you to everyone out there that's listening. Uh, Remember, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Our Twitter handle is Crime News Insider. And our Gmail is Crime News Insider at gmail.com. And until next time, this is the Crime News Insider Podcast. on this podcast are solely of the speakers and do not reflect the views of the Deputy DA Association nor the District Attorney. Questions and comments can be sent to crimenewsinsider at gmail.com. Please leave a rating and review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to this show. Remember to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at San Diego DDAs. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Well,